Well, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Jim Geiling. I'm a professor of medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine in Hanover, New Hampshire, and a practicing bedside clinical critical care provider at its affiliated VA, a Veterans Affairs Hospital in White River Junction, Vermont, and also a tele-ICU doctor for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. As part of the uh, CHEST ongoing program to address the challenges related to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, many of the viewers and, and members of the, of the CHEST organization have expressed some concern about what is the moral distress, the psychological mental health impacts of this pandemic, not just on the patients that we see, but, but also on the healthcare workers themselves. And so as we continue to progress through this uh, ongoing pandemic now with the progression of the Delta variant throughout not only the United States, but worldwide, um, it's an appropriate time to sort of begin to look at these kind of impacts, both again on uh, patients and the healthcare workers themselves. So I'm pleased uh, this afternoon to introduce Dr. Sonia Norman. Sonia is the director of the PTSD consult consultation program and professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Diego. She's a clinical psychologist and a researcher in the treatment of PTSD and addictions and novel treatments to address trauma-related guilt, shame, and moral injury. She's based at the Veterans Affairs Facility in San Diego Healthcare System, where she previously directed the PTSD treatment program for veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. She has over 170 publications related to PTSD and associated problems and has grants funded by the VA, Department of Defense, NIH, and others. And she received her PhD from Stanford University. Dr. Norman, thanks so much for being here this afternoon and I'll turn it over to you. My pleasure, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you today. Let me go ahead and share my screen. So I'm gonna talk about a couple of things today. Um, the main topic is PTSD and moral distress in patients and providers. And what I'm gonna do is share um, some research and some resources. So I'm with the National Center for PTSD, which is within VA. And the National Center for PTSD is funded um, by Congress and by the VA. And we have seven sites that do a combination of research and educational activities um, that really position us as the leader in PTSD in both the US and, and really much of the world or a leader. And um, today I'm gonna, kind of, I'm gonna speak with both hats, my researcher hat and my educator hat. And what I mean by that is that I'm gonna share some research with you about some of the things we're learning about moral distress in healthcare workers. And I'm gonna share some research with you about what we're learning about mental health in general during the pandemic, both by um, you know, the broader public affected by the pandemic and those who've survived COVID-19. Um, and then a large part of the talk will actually be on resources. So these are our products developed by the National Center for PTSD, freely available to everyone on our website that are really designed to help um, the general public, to help healthcare professionals, tools for healthcare professionals to use with patients, Show, I'll show some ones that are particularly relevant during the pandemic. So let me start by talking about healthcare workers. Um, it was really interesting to see right at the start of the pandemic, but then I'd say the first three to five months, you know, definitely by 
by this time last year, there were well over 10 to 15 um, kind of letters of, to the editor and opinion pieces in you know, very high-end journals like JAMA and such about the moral impacts of the pandemic on healthcare workers. And the speculation was that these were such unusual circumstances that um, certainly healthcare workers would be feeling these moral effects. Um, what was interesting and made sense because it was so early was that there was really no data at that time. So there were these great pieces by these great minds, but they were really opinion pieces. So um, we were really interested in actually collecting data on this. And I believe this is actually still one of the only publications out there with data on moral distress and healthcare workers. So I'm gonna walk you through at a pretty high level because I wanna keep this talk brief and really have a lot of time for discussion, but I will uh, walk you through at a kind of a high level um, of a study we did, and then I'm happy to go into further detail. So this was re recently accepted in the Journal of Depression and Anxiety, which is a psychiatry journal. Um, so the idea that we were trying to pursue was that we know that, um, you know, healthcare workers in general, doctors, uh, nurses, others, you know, they're, they're trained to deal with crises. They're trained to see death and dying. It's not like this is new or shocking or automatically stops healthcare professionals in their tracks. But we also saw that the pandemic was um, making certain healthcare workers confront a lot more of this than they usually do. And under circumstances that may, may have challenged their morals and ethics about how things should work. So maybe it's because they didn't have enough resources. Maybe it was because they were being hit with so many patients that they couldn't give patients the care, the level of care they wanted. Maybe it was because they didn't have the tools they normally had. I mean, early in the pandemic, we heard about, you know, people in general medicine being moved to pulmonary and being asked to do these very high level things that weren't part of their standard practice. Um, maybe they were seeing patients die alone in isolation away from family and that felt very wrong to them. So the, the pandemic just raised a number of circumstances for all of us and anyone, but particularly it seemed for healthcare workers that could really kind of lead to this sort of moral distress. Like wh what do I do with this distress of having to take part in these situations that, I, that don't feel right to me? And sometimes day after day when I'm really exhausted. And one of the things we know about this kind of moral distress in the moment is for some people, this can become moral injury. So, um, you know, many of us will find ourselves in morally challenging situations from time to time that can feel very distressing. And for the most part, people that resolves, but for some, it can continue and it um, can become this really deep pain, kind of existential pain that continues. And we call that moral injury. It can be spiritual. It can uh, be emotional. And what we know is this type of moral injury is actually related to um, greater risk of depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, and sometimes um, even suicidal ideation. So what we wanted to see um, was what were healthcare workers experiencing? And we had the opportunity to collect data on over 2,500 healthcare workers in uh, New York City during that first surge last spring. We had them complete a survey there really was no survey of uh, moral distress during the pandemic. So we created our own items and looking at the literature around moral distress, these are really about feelings and worries. Um, so we had the 2,500 healthcare workers complete the survey and we looked at prevalence of these various items and we did a factor analysis and we found that they fell really 
into worries about loved ones, like feeling uh, torn between work and taking care of family, Um, worrying about how taking care of COVID patients would affect family members, children, dependents. Remember last spring, people would actually move to hotels and just see patients around the clock in their PPE that they were lucky to have um, and sometimes not go home for weeks. Um, We had items around worrying about infecting others, infecting patients, infecting colleagues. And remember, again, this was last spring when we knew much less about how the virus was transmitted. Um, And then uh, there was a lot of worries about just, can I do this work? Am I doing enough? Uh, Can I do enough? Uh, Do I know what I'm doing under these circumstances where I've been thrown into something that's very different than my normal job? So that's kind of the three factors that we saw. And what we found was that these various factors, between 50 and 87% of the healthcare workers endorsed them. So they were very common. And we also looked um, at their correlation with post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, symptoms of burnout and symptoms and reporting worse functioning at home and in relationships. And they were related, all of them were related to all three basically. So if you had this moral distress, you were doing worse. Um, And we saw that concerns about work functioning and personal relationships were most strongly related to mental health concerns. Um, So the next step in this is we've actually been able to survey those healthcare workers again, and we wanna look at whether that early distress is associated with worse mental health problems down the road. And um, certainly the pandemic was still continuing, but New York City was in a much better place when we did the second survey. So we'll be able to see sort of what, what were the lasting impacts of that. Um, so what did we learn from this? Um, certainly asking how healthcare workers are doing and, and efforts to prevent distress, prevent these associated symptoms and even intervention, some people is warranted. Um, and when we looked at the literature and we looked at our own expertise in National Center, we have some people who focus their entire careers at help after disasters, after crises, Um, What we came up with was help across uh, a number of domains. So um, people, of course, need to take care of themselves. And so some strategies around that are seeking support around difficult decisions, because when you have to make these decisions that have these very big moral and ethical implications, making them alone can feel much more painful after than when you have the support of a group, when there's some consensus, when you've all been able to talk through it and come to something together that can really uh, prevent some of that deep distress. Um, Talking to others, sharing the burden, using coping tools like apps, like yoga, whatever that is for you as best you can. Um, The other thing we see is that people help themselves by helping others. And that many, even while they're suffering, are very concerned about their peers, their colleagues, their loved ones, and they want to do something for them. So reaching out to others, checking in with how they're doing. Sometimes people feel a lot of pressure to say the right thing or do the right thing, do something to make it better, when really listening is often the most powerful and helpful tool we have. So taking that pressure off ourselves to make it better and just be a good listener is powerful for both parties. and then many of us are also leaders and um, you know, in role, and supervisors. So setting up 
systems where people can take breaks, where they are alternating their work, so they're not always doing the most high pressure work, um, where as policies are changing quickly and decisions are made about how resources are being used, there's clear communication about that. So it doesn't seem like it's happening in a black hole and employees are just the victims of these policies, but that they understand the thinking behind them and why things are the way they are. Um, and one of the most effective things leaders can do is normalize getting help. So, um, you know, because people feel a lot of stigma, even those of us in healthcare feel a lot of stigma for getting mental health care for ourselves, even if we desperately need it. And so creating an environment where that's discussed, where people share that they do that, where it's normalized, is very possible, very powerful. And there's also interventions for those who really develop that longer term moral injury. So one of the things I developed and study is a treatment called trauma-informed guilt reduction therapy, TRIGGER. And it's for guilt and shame and moral injury from trauma. And we actually have a grant funded by the Department of Defense. We got $750,000 about for a three-site study for one year during the pandemic. And now we're looking for a second year of funding um, to study uh, if people have this kind of moral distress during the pandemic, if we treat them, does that prevent these other problems? Does it help? their mental health. And so we're not uh, only studying healthcare workers, although we've gotten quite a few into the study, but we also have people who couldn't travel to a parent's funeral and they felt like they abandoned the other parent who was there by themselves and they weren't there for this important moment. Um, you know, again, all those myriad of, of things the pandemics bring up, we're really learning from our participants. We couldn't even have envisioned the kind of things that they're bringing to us and saying, this is what my guilt is from. Um, so we're learning from them about what's causing guilt during the pandemic, and then we're trying to see if this intervention is effective. So many of these strategies that I've discussed are on our website in a document that's specifically from, about moral injury with healthcare workers, and that the link is at the bottom, but I'll actually show it to you again later when we talk about resources. So let me talk now a little bit about what we know about mental health during the pandemic in general. Um, you know, I get alerts on COVID-19 and mental health articles, and I would say there's tens coming out every single week. There's no shortage of articles, so you'd think we'd know a lot, and we do. We've certainly learned a lot. We know that people are at risk for depression, anxiety, worse post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, but a lot of these are snapshots. Um, they're not representative samples, they're convenience samples, they're done very, the studies are done very quickly. Um, so I would say there's still a long way to go to get kind of really a comprehensive understanding that'll really help us learn for the next pandemic and really help us help the people who need it. Um, but we were lucky in a way in that we have the study that has multiple, multiple data points. It's with a nationally representative sample of veterans. It's called NERVS is what we call it. And we happen to have a data collection point where we sent this uh, survey through Ipsos um, to over 4,000 veterans really shortly before the pandemic, around like January, February, 2020. So we had this pre-pandemic data point. And then we were able to go to National Center and ask for funds to actually get what we then called, we were thinking maybe it would be a post-pandemic data point. It turned out to be a peri-pandemic data point, which was Last winter, early 2021, we were able to go back to those same people and collect data again. Um, the sample is a little older because it's representative of veterans. It's predominantly white um, and about 35% served in combat. And I wanna thank the collaborators, especially since some of them are the ones that put the slides together that I'm about to show you. 
So we're publishing kind of a few uh, different papers from this. But the first one I want to show you was on increased risk of suicidal ideation. So these are people who didn't have, who didn't think about suicide before the pandemic, but now mid-pandemic or peri-pandemic are telling us, yeah, I, I, I have ideation around suicide. I think it might be nice, um, you know, there, uh, which is a risk factor for actual suicidal behavior. So something to be very concerned about. And what we're seeing is that an increased from before the um the pandemic in every age group, but particularly in this group that was 45 to 59. Um, so the group that's working probably has childcare responsibilities, maybe elder care responsibilities. Um, that's where we're seeing the greatest increase. We looked at um, predictors of like risk factors that increase someone's risk of having new suicidal ideation and protective factors and risk factors included older age um, going into the pandemic with more mental health problems, mental health symptoms, previous suicidal behaviors, which makes sense, past behavior is a good predictor of future behavior, and having had COVID-19 was a predictor of new suicidal ideation. Protective factors included higher household income, so more financial stability, and a greater sense of purpose in life. So uh, to go into this just a little bit more, we saw um, that 661 veterans who had depression, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, prior to the pandemic of them, almost 20% had new onset suicidal ideation during the pandemic. And this purpose in life uh, finding was very interesting as people had greater purpose in life, like a two, three, four is greater, you know, as it goes to the right, um, they were less likely to have this new onset suicidal ideation. And we've seen this in other studies too, where having a sense of like, you know, I am doing something meaningful, I'm doing something that matters. I know why I'm here. Um, that is very protective against suicidal ideation. So um, clinical implications, those infected with COVID-19, age 45 and older, or, or with lower purpose in life, were at highest risk. Um, in the mental health field, we have interventions that where we really try to get people to think about what they value, what's meaningful to them, what gives them a sense of purpose, and we work with them to align how they spend their time, their work, their activities to those kinds of things that are meaningful to them so that they're spending more of their life um, in things that feel like they have a sense of purpose. Um, so encouraging more of that. And for some people that could have a religious or spiritual angle to it. And so we always want to ask about that and help connect with chaplains or others to help them connect with their spiritual community if that gives people a sense of purpose. We also wanted to see this, these two data points gave us a pretty unique opportunity to look at, new, at increased rates. Because, you know, again, a lot of this research in the last year has been snapshots. Here's a snapshot of how many people in this population are depressed or have anxiety, but it doesn't mean as much if you don't know if that's a change from before. And we had this before data. So what we see is some increase in depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms and PTSD, well, actually not in PTSD symptoms, um, but only statistically significant in generalized anxiety disorder. And then when we looked by age group, we saw again, it's these midlife people, like I'm sitting right here, um, you know, these people 44, 64, who were really driving this, um, this statistical significance. They were the ones that were really bearing the brunt of having, being more likely to have anxiety, of anxiety being more common. 
um, about 15% had new onset positive screens for psychiatric disorders and risk factors for being in that. Um, and I should say positive screens. We weren't doing a full diagnostic interview. We were doing, giving a short survey. So they, they were screening positive. We don't know for a fact that they have these disorders. But to be in that 15% that now screened positive that didn't before, um, some of the predictors of that were um, actually having fewer adverse events in childhood. Um, having greater alcohol use going into the pandemic, being lonelier going into the pandemic, having less social connections going into the pandemic, those were risk factors for developing mental health problems. And then during the pandemic, um, people who um, became more lonely and people who worried more about the pandemic um, were more likely to develop mental health problems. And these are correlations, not causation, just to be clear. Um, we also looked at, better, at the subsample who had had COVID and about eight, per, eight almost 10% of this, these 3,000 people had had COVID. 70% were about mild to moderate, but we had 6% who had an ER visit or 4.5 who said it was severe, 2% in the ICU and 1% on intubator ventilator. Um, and so among those, um, veterans who had had COVID were more likely to screen positive for anxiety disorders, PTSD, alcohol and substance use disorders. Depression and suicidal ideation did not uh, differ between those who did and didn't have COVID. Um, and uh, risk factors for depression, anxiety, PTSD were having more psychiatric symptoms before the pandemic, um, having more stressors related to COVID. So again, more worries, more social restrictions, financial stress more pre-pandemic um, drug use and um, actually having had more trauma was predict was protective, was less likely to be related to mental health problems. So um, that's an intriguing finding. In terms of substance use, people who use more substances and alcohol during the before the pandemic were more likely to have increased substance use if they had COVID. And related to suicidal ideation, People who were lonelier even before the pandemic were more impulsive and used alcohol more, um, were more likely to have suicidal ideation and having greater, um, feeling more connected to your community, more integration in your community and greater household income were protected against mental health problems among these COVID-19 survivors. So we should definitely be monitoring folks with COVID. And this didn't even ask about long haul symptoms, which we know uh, we're starting to know is related to even more likelihood of mental health um, concerns. So definitely something to be watching. Um, and those with fewer socioeconomic resources, greater symptom severity before the pandemic and more COVID related stressors seem to be from what we know from this sample at highest risk. So certainly we're seeing that as with other studies, there's greater mental health burden with the pandemic. This data is showing us uniquely that um, the pandemic and COVID are raising certain um, mental health problem rates from before the pandemic. And those who have fewer resources and more severe mental health symptoms pre-pandemic are particularly vulnerable. And those with more COVID-related stressors and infections um, really require the most monitoring. So, um, you know, again, I, I, I could give, I'm sure at this point we could have a week long conference just on mental health in the pandemic alone. So I gave you a very high level overview of, of a few of the studies that we've done. Um, and I'm gonna 
turn now to showing you some of these resources. So I'm actually gonna stop sharing this screen for a second and share um, our webpage where we have our COVID resources. So I, I wanna show you um, what we developed or modified in response to the pandemic so that you're aware of it. So National Center for PTSD or NCPTSD COVID, if you Google that, this comes up. And what we did as we were developing resources for uh, for, the, for everyone, for healthcare workers and responders, for leaders, um, was at first we just developed things and we realized, oh my gosh, there's so much, we need to sort it somehow. So we came up with these three tabs. Um, and I'll just show you some of what we have so you're aware of it and can come back to it in your own work or for you know, however you wanna use these. Um, so for everyone, there's a lot of uh, self-help tools and there's an app called COVID Coach that I'll show you a little bit more about, but it's kind of a stress management tool that's nice to have right there on your phone. And there's a lot of different um, resources on managing stress, helpful thinking. Um, for a while, uh, you know, there was a lot of, well, on, depending on where you are ongoing, uh, people not comfortable wearing masks. So we developed a document that sort of really tried to be very sensitive to what are your particular reasons to having concerns about masks and going from there to help people uh, with strategies for that. Um, for family members affected by COVID, a lot of this is also in Spanish. There are resources about dealing with grief because there was a lot of loss during the pandemic. There was increased rates of intimate partner violence when people didn't have their normal support systems and couldn't leave the houses freely. So we have some resources around that. Um, tips for supporting others and helping others through their grief and some other related um, resources. The healthcare workers ones, there's ones, there's some resources on helping your patients and some resources for yourself and your colleagues. And um, so um, helping people manage stress, working with patients who've been through COVID, uh, treating PTSD during COVID. Um, some of this gets very nuanced for people who are treating PTSD, but there are, um, if you want to learn more about moral injury, there's a page here that really summarizes the research and what it is and, and what we know about it. Um, and then there's some self-help materials. And this is that page, Moral Injury and Healthcare Workers that I referenced earlier. This is very specific to healthcare workers and what we know and some strategies, some of which I went over at the beginning of the talk. There's also frameworks. So if you're ever in a situation where you have to go in after a disaster, after you know um, some sort of event that affects a large number of people, there's stress first aid and psychological first aid. So these are manuals that can actually be downloaded. And then um, additional resources that you can look through. And similarly, the ones for leaders, I won't go into in a lot of detail, but um, certainly you could look here and, um, and see what's there that could be helpful to you. So let me go back to the slides. There we go. Um, so this is a little bit more about the COVID Coach app, just so you could see a little bit about the screens, what it looks like. It's very, very calm. Um, and there's information, education, various tools and trackers and graphs, um, lots of helpful resources. Uh, these are those manuals I mentioned. You can actually download them from our site. And all of this is on that COVID page. 
And then we have a lot of resources in general around PTSD and trauma and disasters uh, that are helpful and applicable during COVID as well. Um, Jim mentioned the program I run, the PTSD consultation program. So we're available to any healthcare provider to talk about any question related to caring for veterans with PTSD. We're also help, we can also help you find resources not for veterans. Um, and we're available to email or talk and answer really questions about treatment, assessment, medication. Um, we have uh, tools to assess PTSD and there's all sorts of tools from ones you would use in other areas of medicine, just as a five item screener to diagnostic interviews that go through every single symptom and ask for examples and take an hour, but really give you a very um, you know, reliable diagnosis. Um, for those of you who are um, interested in just screening for PTSD and aren't in mental health, there's the PCPTSD, which is primary care PTSD, which is a five item assessment. And if people, yes, no answers, if people endorse at least three, that's a positive screen for PTSD, suggesting that more assessment would be useful. And you can download that from our site. Um, you can have these slides and all of these are live links, but also, again, you can always Google National Center for PTSD, PCPTSD, and you'll find it, or you could email me or the consultation program and we'll get these to you. We have some newsletters people can sign up for if they'd like more information on trauma and PTSD, some for the general public, some for health professionals. And then we have uh, tools directly for the public or really for anyone. So if someone wants to learn more about PTSD treatment, the PTSD decision aid lines up all the different evidence-based treatments, treatments that really we know work from research and people can compare and contrast and say, oh, this seems like a better fit for me because I wanna take medication, I don't want therapy, or I do wanna talk about my trauma or I don't. And they can see, learn about uh, what works and what their options are. About face, um, just Google be, uh, about face PTSD and it comes right up. It's just an incredible resource of um, hundreds of people talking about their PTSD and how they knew they had PTSD and why they decided to get help and how treatment changed their lives. It's incredible for people who aren't sure if they do or don't have PTSD or if treatment is right for them. They can find someone of their ethnicity, age, you know, sexual orientation. Like it's a very diverse site. Um, and we have a number of apps. All of these are free. PTSD Coach and uh, COVID Coach. These are all kind of self-help tools. There's some that help people stop drinking. There's a Mindfulness Coach. So these are all great uh, kind of stress management tools, anxiety management tools. That change um, is for veterans with PTSD who want to reduce their drinking. So it's kind of specific, but it's a self-help tool. And PTSD Coach Online is for those who want to use the PTSD Coach but don't want to do an app on their phone. They'd rather have their full computer. So those are just a few of the resources. Again, I'm happy to help you find any of these. There's also a lot more. But um, I'm going to stop sharing now and open this up so we can take some questions. Yeah, great. That was awesome. So thank you so much for uh, walking our way through this. And um, for those of you on the call from the U.S., I think it's a really important message here is uh, it, the Veterans Affairs, your tax dollars, have an incredible amount of resources, uh, not just for the veterans, but uh, for the whole healthcare industry and um, all of the United States and, uh, and around the world, really. So thanks to you, Sonia, and all of your team and uh, the National Center for all the great work that they sort of do, which really is a national and international resource.
Um, some of the questions that have come in um, probably are buried. The answers are buried in some of those um, resources that you offered. But just a real quick one over. Um, might you talk about, you know, I'm a healthcare worker. I'm just tired. It was in New York. Now uh, it's popping up in Missouri. Uh, those who are in Indonesia right now. How do I distinguish between I'm just tired um, and it's actually coming into something a little bit more serious that I need to think about? And then the next step would be, what can I manage on my own? And then when, do, when what are some warning signs that I really need to go get some help? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't think, um, I think very few of us haven't at some point felt kind of at the end of our rope during the pandemic, right? some sense of burnout, some sense of just, you know, feeling down or just over it. Um, and that question of, you know, when do I sort of white knuckle through it versus when do I, you know, when is it time to reach out for help is a really, really good one. Um, you know, I think we all have the things that help us through a hard time. Um, and those are things that we've learned over time are helpful to us for some it's exercise, it's, you know, socializing as best you can during the pandemic. I was lucky here in San Diego to have my backyard pretty much year round. I know that's not true everywhere, but also did lots of Zooming with people all over. Um, so, you know, I think you try those things and you give it a little time and you see, is it kind of waxing and waning and um, you can kind of, you, you feel like it's manageable some of the signs that it really is time to kind of do something differently and maybe reach out for help might be if you're feeling down, you know, most of the day, every day, and it's lasting more than a week or two. If you're feeling anxious and amped up and trouble sleeping, which isn't normal for you for again, kind of two weeks, I would say is a good threshold for, okay, it's not just kind of transient. It's really sticking and it's really affecting me. Um, if it's affecting your functioning. So if you feel like distracted at work or you can't really do your work or you're missing things you wouldn't normally miss. Um, if it's affecting your relationships. So you feel like you're constantly at odds with people because of these, you know, internal feelings. You're, you know, you're not, your relationship with your children, with your loved ones, with your, you know, your spouse feels very different and very negative. And that's, it's only, it's not getting better. Um, so that, so those kind of, um, changes in mood, changes in functioning, whether it's at work or in relationships, those are some of the big things that would be a suggestion that getting help would be a good idea. And how about some red flags for your coworkers? Uh, same sort of thing, uh, maybe perhaps a little bit more depressed mood or perhaps even the other way, they're a little bit more overanimated and the like. What are some things you can sort of say, okay, I, I need to go put my arm around this person and just sort of say it's time to time to go get some help? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, it's it's a hard line because some people you'll never know it, right? They won't show any of those behaviors and they may be some of the ones struggling the most. So I think really we have to um, check in with everyone. And then it's sort of hard because you also don't want to be that person going around checking in with everyone all the time. So you kind of have to find, um, you know, a comfortable way to do it or just a sort of, you know, I always think about how do I make, make myself accessible? How do I consistently make it clear to the people in my sphere that I'm a safe person, that if they're struggling, they can come to and talk to me and, and feel good about it. Um, so I think putting ourselves out that way, being good listeners, being available, casually checking in, I think is really important for everyone. But certainly if you see someone in your sphere who's 
you know, just visibly upset or amped up again, consistently, not in a transient way, but you're seeing it over some amount of time or you're seeing someone's job performance really affected. And I know I've had the experience where I'm seeing it and they're kind of in denial, right? So that's hard where you're, you you don't want to be like, Hey, I see you messing up a lot if they're kind of not, not ready to, um, to confront that. But I think there's ways to just um, make yourself available to that person to just say, you know, how are you doing? Or, you know, let's, let's, you know, stop for a coffee, whether that's, you know, in person at the hospital or on Zoom, depending on how we're working at that time. Yeah, that's great. Those, those are great points, because I think uh, sometimes we sort of... Uh, sweep a lot of this kind of stuff under the rug for, uh, for ourselves and for each other. And then, uh, then we are, are taken by surprise when uh, there's an untoward event with a coworker or family member or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, when really- you do look at some, oh, just quickly, when you do look at some of this literature around this, I mean, we are seeing like nurses having, you know, rates of suicidal ideation that are really high, you know, and these are people all around us and, um, you know, so the struggle is very real. You know, this is this has really worn worn people down at very high levels. So it, it really is. You know, no one's no one's safe. You know, we really should be checking in with each other. So it's probably I'm just looking at our time. We we have a little bit of time. It's probably a bigger, obviously a, a lot larger conversation. But but most people on this call are are not mental health providers. We're you know, critical care. We work in that kind of unit. There's a, an ethicist on the on the who registered. Can you just walk us through perhaps a, f- a few of the options? Uh, you know, I decide to go seek help. My friend decides to go seek help. What does the psychologist, psychiatrist think about? And what are some treatment options that people might be uh, might be looking at? What's what's out there uh, as on the menu these days? Yeah. Um... You know, so people are responding to the pandemic differently, and I, any good mental health professional would, would kind of get to know you and and do some assessment and try to do it quickly because we know healthcare professionals are really busy and we don't want to waste anyone's time. And most of the good mental health work now can be done in, in just a few meetings. It's not, you know, like a psychodynamic therapy on a couch for years at all. It's, it's maybe like, you know, a handful of meetings. Um, so we want to figure out what's going on and that might, you know, it's, would take some talking and some questions and maybe even some questionnaires. Um, if it's, you know, just stress and burnout, we, we figure out what's going on and, and some strategies to help. If there's, you know, if there's a diagnosable major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD, we have evidence-based treatments for those, um, you know, treatments that have been studied in randomized clinical trials, numerous trials at this point. Um, so a good mental health professional will offer a treatment that works because, you know, there's lots of things on the internet and lots of, you know, just last week, someone was emailing me about sand, tra- sand tray therapy, which is an app where you play with a sand tray. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's not going to really fix someone's PTSD. So there's, there's endless things out there, but there's, I would look for the treatments that work. And, um, and uh, so if someone's diagnosed, you know, that, that's what you would do. And it, it really is a good time because it used to be, especially with PTSD, it's actually a newer diagnosis it, um, in our diagnostic manual. 
Um, so really in the last 40 years, we've come a long way. So if someone older comes to me and say, oh, I, I tried treatment 20 years ago, I would say, okay, forget that. We've learned so much since then. Back then you were probably told your PTSD was like diabetes. You'd manage it for your, the rest of your life, but you'd have it. Now we know you can recover. And so in PTSD, we have therapies, we have medications. Some of the therapies that work are prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR. I know this probably means nothing to most people on this call, but if you're interested in learning more, email me, I'll send you lots of links to learn about it. Um, but the, the main message I wanna share is that these are treatable, all of them. Yeah, that's great. I, I know that uh, a lot of a lot of healthcare workers, not unlike uh, military folks, try to like gut it through and uh, are a little bit reticent to go see a mental health provider because of stigma, because of uh, don't want to get another medicine, uh, all those other kind of things, historical perspectives and uh, disinformation on the internet. So, I think you bring up some really great points as. Uh, it's 2021 and we have a lot of options. And um, so I think that that's really helpful. One thing that, you know, from uh, being a veteran myself and also, um, you know, having been around military veteran personnel for a long time, the PTSD um, thing can, can be long-term or it can go away and, and come back a smell, a sound, uh, some sort of other trigger can sort of put that off and, or can bring a recurrence. There's this sudden urge, particularly in the United States and perhaps parts of Western Europe, to let's get back to normal. Um, and yes, I was feeling bad and all that, but I, I'm much better. And then wham, something happens. There's a new patient. There's a new odor. I got to put an N95 on again for tuberculosis. What, tell us about going forward and what, what should we be thinking about the uh, about recurrence, about flashbacks, if you will, and, and how long are, are we ever cured or is it going to be there around for a while? Can you, can you talk us through that a little bit going forward? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in some areas of medicine, we really talk about cures and that's a really appropriate term. People sometimes ask me, can you cure PTSD? And I don't think that's an appropriate term for mental health. We think more about recovery um, because it's much more of a, of a range so what we often see is someone coming in who's having a hard time at work, who's having a hard time in their relationships, maybe they're using alcohol, they're drinking more than they you know, think is okay. Um, and where we wanna get them is to feeling better day to day, being more excited about life, um, not drinking in a way that makes them feel bad, um, you know, feeling more satisfied in their relationships and in their work. And if we can move them from where they are to that part of the spectrum, that's a great uh, road to recovery. Sometimes we have people who have zero symptoms at the end of treatment. You know, I guess you could say they were cured, but, but that's not really the expectation. The expectation is that we figure out what your goals are and help you get there. And does that mean, you know, again, there's some conditions that you come in positive and after treatment you're negative and you never have a recurrence. Mental health isn't like that. Life isn't like that. Everyone's going to have bad days. Everyone's going to have days where they think about their worst memory all day long and get wrapped up in it. And certainly it's the same for people, even if they did great in treatment or are generally feeling that much better, they'll have really hard times. What the data shows us is that people who've had treatment and generally have resolved um, a lot of their symptoms, they will have those times, but they're not, the lows aren't as low and they don't tend to last as long. 
Um, so again, those kind of waves of life um, tend to, to be better. And, uh, and certainly, you know, again, we used to think of PTSD as this life sentence and people would come, veterans would come to the VA and they'd keep coming and coming and coming, I mean, 30, 40 years. And now the expectation is why would we want to make you a lifelong patient? Why would you want that for yourself? So you come, we'll do an evidence, you know, we'll do a, um, a round of treatment to meet your goals. Once you're feeling better and ready, you don't need to come back, but we're here for you. If you need another episode of care, if you hit a hard patch, we're here for you. So it's more episodic and need-based understanding that people will go through hard times again. Excellent, thanks. Well, um, well I put out a call for any uh, last minute questions in the chat group and, and nothing's popped up. So um, before we sign off, Sonia, any other last minute things or um, any other kind of summary wrap up things you'd like to talk about? No, I really appreciate the time. This is such a great audience to present to and, you know, nice to present on these issues to folks outside of mental health. Um, but if you do have further questions or are just looking for some of these resources that I mentioned, you know, seriously, feel free to reach out um, and email me directly or at ptsdconsult.va.gov through the consultation program and we'll help you find what you're looking for. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. Well, again, many thanks to, to you for your time this afternoon, morning, wherever people happen to be for, uh, for tailoring the presentation to a bunch of non-mental health providers uh, to sort of make it applicable to us and really for everything that you and everyone at the National Center are doing, again, not just for veterans, but uh, for the nation and internationally. So thanks so much to you and uh, to everyone else for joining the call and you all have a nice day and stay safe out there. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye.